so obviously Dr. Doyle's out today, and I'm in, and we're, what I'm going to do today is just go over some basic cardiovascular fundamentals. This should be a review for most of you. If it's not, it'll help catch you up before Dr. Doyle starts talking about some more cardiovascular related issues in class, and specifically, you guys noticed last week we did blood pressure and heart rate during lab, and this week we're going to use it, so I'll be talking about a lot of the stuff that we have done and will be doing in lab during this lecture, okay? Do you guys have any questions before we get started? Okay. When's your next exam? It's the, it's the week before Thanksgiving. Okay, and I think I talked to my lab about this, but normally he likes to have the lab the week before um, your exam be a review lab. However, just considering the schedule, I think what we're going to do is do the ventilatory threshold lab that day, but make it really short, so that way we leave time afterward for questions, okay? So I think that's the plan right now, but it could change. And there's no lab report for tomorrow. <laughs> no lab report for tomorrow. No, there is not. You just got credit for showing up last week, okay? Showing up and participating last week. There we go, okay? So like I said, we're talking about cardiovascular fundamentals today. Hopefully, the, when I converted this for, from the file Dr. Doyle sent to me, it doesn't start cutting things off at the bottom. It looks like it's all right right now, but we'll see what happens in the later slides. But I guess first of all, what we're going to talk about is, is the, the primary function of the cardiovascular system and then some other functions that are important, but again, there is a primary function. We'll talk about the major components, heart, the heart, blood, and blood vessels. And we'll talk about the cardiac cycle, the, the different components of blood, and erythropoiesis. Said that right? The functional anatomy of blood vessels, because it's a really important part of how the cardiovascular system regulates blood pressure and blood flow to specific areas of the body. Considering that, we'll talk about blood pressure itself. And then we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about the equation for oxygen consumption which is something that we've already measured in lab. You guys remember the EPOC lab, the aerobic metabolism lab? All right, and then we'll do a ventilatory threshold lab in a couple of weeks like I, that I just talked about, which is very well correlated with, with the lactate or anaerobic threshold that you guys have talked about before as well, okay? So considering that last point right there, and considering you guys have the slides in front of you, it's pretty easy to see that the, the primary purpose of the cardiovascular system is to deliver oxygen to tissue. And you guys know if you cut blood flow off or if you make oxygen unavailable, eventually you'll see death. Okay? So it is, that's, that's the primary, the most important function is to deliver oxygen to tissue. And so we'll talk a lot about the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood and how oxygen diffuses out of that blood and into tissue. But remember that there are also other functions related to the cardiovascular system. Not only does it drop oxygen off, so to speak, at tissue, it also picks up waste products. Carbon dioxide, okay? It can recirculate lactate to muscles that can consume it. It can also transport nutrients. So what are some nutrients that you'd see transported in blood? Somebody said glucose. Okay. You see different vitamins, minerals. All right. What uh, what do you get? What do you have to go? What do you have to fast before you get measured? You have to, 
get a fast before you get your cholesterol measured, right? And they'll measure triglycerides and they can look at plasma-free fatty acids too. So you can carry fatty acids in the blood, different proteins, all right? Hormones, endocrine hormones, epinephrine, norepinephrine, circulate through the bloodstream and, and provide different signaling uh, modes for tissues to respond to. Acid-base balance, the last time I was in here I talked about the uh, bicarbonate buffering system. There are also other proteins in the blood that we didn't talk about that serve as buffering systems. Okay? The blood also serves, or the body can regulate body fluid levels through regulation of plasma volume. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the components of the blood and then the cardiovascular system as a whole. And then finally, it can serve as a thermoregulator. What happens when you're in a cold, when you're exercising or when you're outside in a cold environment? Do you see vasodilation? So do you, do you see blood flow go to the surface of the skin or do you see vasoconstriction? where blood's taken away from the surface. Constriction, you don't, want, you don't want to lose as much body heat, so the body's going to try and limit the amount of blood flow to skin, so you won't lose heat that way. How many of you guys have ever had alcohol before? Okay. I just thought I'd ask, you know. Um, but you know what happens, you feel pretty good after that, after that first drink, you start to feel a little warm. Yeah, you know that good feeling. So you know that's you know that's 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 not really a true feeling of warmth. How many of you guys have ever heard these? Like you know, if you're in a cold environment, you're not supposed to drink a lot because it could predispose you to hypothermia. Ever heard about that? Because actually, actually, alcohol is a vasodilator, so it increases blood flow to the skin. All right. Although I drank a lot in undergrad during football games, and I think it does make you warmer. But I was just I was doing experiments, and practicing. So, all right. So, and and an important issue or or point that I wanted to bring up too is that when you're talking about the cardiovascular system, like I said, its primary function is to carry oxygen. Well, blood can't be oxygenated without the lungs, correct? So really, it's important to, con to, to consider the lungs as well and to look at the, at the cardiovascular system more as the cardiopulmonary system. All right, Because with, without that gas exchange at the lungs where you take on oxygen and let CO2 go, you're not, you're not going to be able to perform, or the cardiovascular system won't be able to perform its primary function. Okay, Again, Delivering oxygen to tissue. Okay, and that's just a representation of blood flow, and we'll talk a little bit more about the finer points of that in a second. But again, like I said, we're going to talk about anatomy and function of the three major components of the cardiovascular system. The heart, which is the pump, and we'll talk about it being a positive pressure pump here in a second. The blood is the transportation medium. The blood has different structures in it, components that allow it to carry oxygen, two different tissues. And then finally the blood vessels form the transportation network around different tissues and organs. And you guys, for me it always helped, especially when you consider mu muscle tissue, which since this is an exercise physiology class, you're mostly dealing with muscle tissue. Most fibers, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, in an untrained person have three to four capillaries surrounding them. Okay, With training, that can increase to eight, so it can double with training. 
All right? And so consider that, consider just those capillaries sort of wrapping around and passing through a fiber, okay? And that may help you visualize a little more about what we're going to be talking about. But first we'll talk about the heart, okay? Kind of the central piece of the system. And Dr. Doyle just wanted me to point out the major, major structures. You guys, how many of you guys have had Dr. Engel's cardiopulmonary class? You have to take it as an exercise science major, don't you? Yeah, but you have to have this first. You have to have this first. Okay. All right. Well, then you'll get a lot more of this with his class. But major structures. The two top chambers in the heart are atria. Okay? Right and left atria. And the two bottom chambers are ventricles. Okay? When ventricles contract, they pump, pump blood out. The right ventricle pumps blood out to the lungs. The left, and so it can be oxygenated. The left ventricle pumps blood out to the rest of the body, so it pumps oxygenated blood out to tissue. Okay, and so in between those atrium and ventricles, you have valves that open to allow the when the atrium contract, they open to allow blood to flow into the ventricles, but then they close after that, so there's no backflow. Okay, and that's what creates the pump that the ventricles function as. All right, so the right atrium receives deoxygenated blood from the body through the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava. Okay? So all that deoxygenated blood is deposited into the right atrium. It contracts, pushes the blood into the right ventricle. That deoxygenated blood is, the, when that ventricle contracts, that deoxygenated blood is then pushed up through the left pulmonary artery, again, because I said this tricuspid valve doesn't let blood flow back into the right atrium. So it's pushed up through the left pulmonary artery. Okay, again, remember, arteries take blood away from the heart. Veins bring it back. It's pushed through the left pulmonary artery of the lungs, where it's oxygen, or the left and right pulmonary artery, depending on where it wants to go, okay? Where it's oxygenated and it's brought back through the right and left pulmonary veins and dumped into the, the left atrium. From there, it goes through the bicuspid valve. Then the, when that left ventricle contracts, it pushes oxygenated blood out through the aorta to the rest of the body. All right, so those are kind of the major structures, the valves, atria, ventricles, veins, and arteries, okay? And this is just an example right here. Um, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was an undergrad and I took a, what was it, clinical exercise physiology class, we had to draw, we had to like trace blood flow through the heart and the body. And so this is just a basic example of those different steps and the structures that that blood passes through and by during its route through the body. Okay? Any questions on any of that? So, so it's just basic functional anatomy. And the cardiac cycle, the point Dr. Doyle wanted me to make here was that the heart doesn't contract, like so the atrium and ventricles don't contract all at once together. If you guys have taken a class where you've looked at, and I don't know, how many of you guys have seen an EKG? Either in a class or just, okay. What that does is it measures electrical activity of the heart. And if you look, that electrical activity is, depolariza is, is depolarization. And that wave of depolarization spreads over the heart. And that's what causes contraction. So it doesn't, that, the entire heart doesn't contract at one time. You have the atria contracting first and then the ventricles. Okay, so when you see the heart move, it kind of twists a little bit and pulses. So it's kind of a wave of contraction running down the heart muscle. Does that make sense? 
Okay, because if, if, if they contracted at the same time, you'd have problems, correct? All right, so you want the atria contracting and then the ventricles. You want the atria to empty so that it can fill the ventricles so they can pump blood to the lungs and to the rest of the body. All right, so that's the biggest point Dr. Doyle wanted me to make about the cardiac cycle. Now, so that's the heart. So now this is the transportation medium, the blood. This is what the oxygen's transported in, and this is what all those other substances, CO2, hormones, nutrients, are transported in as well. Okay. Speaking of, oh, I was going to ask you a question about that. So give me, give me the two major sources of CO2. There's metabolic and non-metabolic. Where would the metabolic come from? What energy system? What? Comes from the TCA cycle, so it would come from aerobic metabolism. Okay, so what, and we and when I was in here last time, we talked about the other source of CO2. <coughs> and I said it was non-metabolic CO2. Remember bicarbonate buffering system? Okay, so you have, yeah, so when you have too many hydrogen ions, they can combine with HCO3. And remember, like I, when I showed you that bicarbonate buffering pathway, it's reversible. And so that can end up in formation of CO2 as well. Okay? So you have metabolic and non-metabolic CO2. But, back to this, the point here being, how many guys have ever had blood drawn? Okay? And we can do this in the, in the lab uh, downstairs too. You draw blood, you can put it in a tube, and then you can put it in the centrifuge. And what happens when you do that is you spin it and the heavier proteins migrate toward the bottom of the test tube, and the lighter ones stay toward the top. And so what you end up with are basically three different layers. You end up with erythrocytes, or red blood cells, which form the, the, the what they usually call the bottom of this test tube is the pellet, okay? The heavier substances at the bottom of it. You don't have to know that, it's just FYI if somebody uses that term, okay? But these are, this, the red blood cells are heavier proteins and they're pushed down toward the bottom, okay? They're not heavier proteins necessarily, they're just heavier structures, all right? They're made up, they're cells, so they're made up of proteins and lipids and everything, okay? And then you'll have a, a small coat here that are the white blood cells, okay? And platelets. Leukocytes is just another term for white blood cells, okay? And platelets. And then finally, the top layer will be plasma. And you can see here the composition. So red blood cells make up about 45% of blood. Okay? And that, how many of you guys have ever heard the term hematocrit? Okay, that's what hematocrit is. is the percentage of blood that is composed of red blood cells. All right, and it's around 40. 45% is kind of where males usually are, and females are usually down towards 40 but they can range in between 40 and 45% in normal conditions, okay? So you got three components. You've got red blood cells, white blood cells, and plasma, all right? And the red blood cells are responsible for the oxygen carrying capacity of blood, okay? And so there are, there are your basic components. 
And then again, here's the, the major structure, like I said, that's responsible for carrying oxygen, is an erythrocyte or a red blood cell. And they're disc-shaped, and they are somewhat flexible, because once you get down to very small capillaries, they need to be flexible sometimes to be able to be pushed through. All right? Now, and one important thing, they don't have mitochondria or nuclei either. So if they don't have mitochondria, what kind of metabolism would they need to rely on primarily? Or completely? Anaerobic, right? Okay. And they don't have nuclei either. Okay. And this is structurally a picture of hemoglobin. And red blood cells contain hemoglobin. And this is what gives them the ability to bind and carry oxygen. Okay. And this is just an example of showing that that hemoglobin molecule uses iron. This little Fe in the center here is an example of this hemoglobin disc. It uses iron to carry that oxygen. And I think it's something like 60 to 70% of the iron in your body is contained in red blood cells. So what, ha what do you see if somebody has an iron deficiency? The tired. The tired, but what do you call it? Uh, anemia. Anemia. Anemia, all right. So you, you can see how an iron deficiency would probably impact your ability to carry oxygen. Correct? All right. And this is just an example. How many of you guys have ever heard of EPO? Erythropoietin. Okay. What it does is stimulates red blood cell production. Red blood cells are produced in bone marrow. So if the body senses hypoxia, or a shortage of oxygen. Now this hypoxia can be due to low red blood cell count. It can be due to a decrease in oxygen in the atmosphere, or it can be due to increased tissue demand for oxygen. So, name, get, so what's the situation where you'd see decreased atmospheric oxygen? Or pre altitude. altitude, exactly. Okay? And one of the major adaptations to training at altitude is increased, or not training at altitude, but living at altitude, is increased red blood cell count and blood volume. Okay? Increased tissue demands would just be training. Right? Okay? So those are just a couple different situations. And if you, have you guys ever heard some of the dangers associated with EPO? Isn't that so, what they do? They doping. They like now, now, blood doping and EPO are, are different things. EPO is a, a synthetic form of erythropoietin. Um, my dad's a veterinarian, and so they use it in horses a lot. But it, you can, I mean, humans can use it as well. But the problem is, if you use too much of it, it thickens your blood. And that's not a good thing, because if your blood gets thicker, it gets harder to perfuse into some of those smaller capillaries, and you can, and you can actually have some cardiac failure as a result of that. Okay? And then blood doping is just where, like if I, were to, if I was going to compete in like an endurance event in a few weeks, they would take a certain amount of blood from me, store it, and then re-inject it once I got closer to competition, giving me more red blood cells, increasing my ability to carry oxygen to tissues. And they've actually done, I don't know how recent they've been because I don't know, probably, I know it does require a ton of medical clearance to do studies with blood doping, but I, every, almost every blood doping study they've done has shown an increase in endurance performance as a result of it. What? It's banned. Yeah. 
And so that's one, I think that's what Lance Armstrong was actually suspected of a couple of years ago. What? They can test for the, and, I, and I'm not for sure on this, but I think they can test for the age of red blood cells. And I, something in here, and again, it was the French that were doing the test, and they don't like him very much. So, um, they, French people don't like it when any other cyclists start winning things. And French people don't win things very often. Wars, athletic competitions, anything. So, all right. So, maybe they have a reason to be bitter and not like us, huh? But what you see here is the body actually has the ability to respond in, in a case of decreased red blood cell count or decreased atmospheric oxygen or increased oxygen demand. And what it does is the kidney is what is the organ that actually releases erythropoietin, stimulates red bone marrow to produce more red blood cells, and then it increases the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood. All right? And Dr. Doyle, I know this chart looks really complex. But this points out another feature of the cardiovascular system and that it can function to help the body retain fluid. Don't pay attention to kind of this middle part. Look at the top there. Decreased plasma volume. Plasma has a lot of water, it's mostly water, okay? So what happens when you decrease plasma volume? You decrease cardiac output. And I know I've talked about it a little bit with, bit with my labs. Cardiac output is the major limitation associated with VO2 max. You guys, has Dr. Doyle talked about that a little bit too? Okay. You know, have you guys talked about cardiac output? No? Okay. Cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. Stroke volume is the amount of blood that left ventricle ejects when it contracts. Okay. So cardiac output represents the total amount of blood that you can move in a minute. Does that make sense? And so, wouldn't it make sense that since the primary function of the cardiovascular system is to deliver oxygen, it would make sense that cardiac output would be the major limiter to maximal exercise, right? Okay. So, what happens when you decrease plasma volume is you actually decrease cardiac output, which is not a good thing especially during endurance events, okay? It, during hot conditions or during like marathon type conditions, a lot of people, if you become dehydrated, you'll lose plasma volume, it'll decrease your performance or it'll impact your performance negatively. So what you see with decreased plasma volume, you see a decrease in arterial pressure, which we'll talk about why that's important in a second. Increased osmolarity or just increased concentration of that plasma in regards to sodium, potassium, electrolytes, things like that. And again, those conditions are going are are to result in a cascade of different signals that are all going to lead to increased plasma volume. Again, like I said, don't worry about the, the middle part, but it's going to help you retain more water, and then it's going to result in vasoconstriction, which is going to help maintain arterial pressure. Okay? And the cardiovascular system primarily controls that arterial pressure through arterioles, okay? And so this is a representation of the major structures associated with blood vessels. So you have arteries, arterioles, 
These larger arteries run into smaller arterioles. These smaller arterioles run into even smaller capillaries, which empty into venules and then veins. Okay? And so here is, I guess, a blown up representation of arteries and arterioles. And you can see smooth muscle surrounds these arterioles. Smooth muscles controlled by the sympathetic nervous system. And so what you can do is you can actually vary the size of those arterioles based on the conditions. Okay? You guys familiar with like fight or flight syndrome? You know, being associated with sympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic is, uh, I like rest and digest, I think is a good term. Okay? Um, but Depending on conditions, you can contract or relax these muscles to allow more blood flow to tissue or less. Okay? And, and a good example is during exercise, these, are, these smooth muscles are actually going to relax, vasodilate, and allow more blood flow to working tissue, specifically muscle, muscle tissue. During exercise, though, the arterioles associated with like your gut, and associated with digestion or other functions that aren't that important at the time, they're going to contract and constrict blood flow to those areas. Okay? So more blood is sent to working tissue. Does that make sense? So the primary regulation of blood flow and arterial pressure is in the arterioles because of those smooth muscles. All right? So what about sometimes with the veins, like right here, they kind of like sometimes they look really, I don't know, is it? Hydration veins being like, what do you mean? It could, it, I mean, it could be, it could be due to the temperature in the room if you see more vasodilation. But remember, the, the major changes you're going to see as far as size of the structures is going to be in arteries and not, not veins. Veins aren't going to change nearly as much, and we'll talk about why here in a second. Okay. But it could have to do, again, like a, with hydration, it could have to do with the temperature of the room. Whereas if it's hot, you're going to see vasodilation because you're going to attempt to, I guess, lose some of that heat through blood flow to the skin. Okay. But just remember that primary control point is in arteries and arterioles. Okay. And as you can see here, capillaries are really thin. Why would you want capillaries to be really, really thin? Diffusion, okay? You want oxygen to be able to diffuse out correctly, or correct, yeah. and you want waste products, CO2, lactate, all these other things, to be able to diffuse into the blood. And so these, these capillary walls are really thin and are really fragile. And we'll talk about the importance of that, I think, on the next slide here. Or actually, this is, this is a good example of what I was talking about as far as being able to control blood flow to different tissues. You can see here you have what's called a shunt, and these smooth muscles are wrapped around this arterial. So what happens if, let's say this is the gut, stomach, you know, small intestines, having to do with digestion, and you're exercising. You want to, cut, you want to reduce blood flow to this area because you need to push more of it toward working muscle. What you've got to do is contract these smooth muscles, and you'll limit that blood flow and direct it back toward areas of need. Does that make sense? Okay. And again, another good representation of, of, a, of a capillary with a single layer of epithelium. Very thin. 
And here's an example of why the arteries are such good control mechanisms. And you can see here, these bars represent the relative makeup of those arteries. And so you have endothelium, okay, or skin type tissue, we'll call it, elastic tissue, smooth muscle, and then fibrous kind of non-elastic tissue. And you'll see arteries have a lot of elastic tissue and especially smooth muscle that allows them to vary the size of that lumen okay, or the size of that tract inside the artery. And so it can vary the pressure and the blood flow to different areas of the body. It depends on the tissue. Because smooth, now during exercise, you see an increase in epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are sympathetic functions. And normally, under those kind of conditions, you would see vasoconstriction, but if, if in working muscle, there are conditions that allow vasodilation. So in areas that you don't need it, you'll see vasoconstriction. In areas that you need it, you'll see vasodilation. Does that make sense? So it depends on the tissue. All right. And so those are arteries. You see a lot more smooth muscle and elastic tissue in arteries. And it, the same example with arterioles. Okay. And like I said, they, they provide the primary control point for maintenance of blood pressure. And then finally capillaries, like we talked about earlier, are made up just of a single layer of epithelium. And then comparatively, veins have much less muscle tissue and aren't nearly as elastic. How many of you guys have ever heard of a term called the muscle pump? Okay, during exercise you rely a lot on movement and muscle contraction to maintain venous return, okay, or flow through those veins. How many of you guys have ever heard of, I, not, a good example of this would be when I was at the University of Kansas, we had a professor that went out for a run one day and he had some cardiovascular problems. He went out for a run and came back in the locker room and sat down right after the run and actually had a heart attack and died. Reason was, is if, the, and the reason they advocate cool down, especially for people that are in at-risk populations like people with cardiovascular disease, is because blood has a tendency to pool in veins if it's not push through them with the use of that muscle pump. And so basically he had like a lot of vasodilation going on. He was pumping lots of blood from the run. He came back in and sat down and a lot of that blood probably just pooled in extremities, reduced the, the amount of blood that was returned to the heart and reduced the amount of oxygenated blood he could move through the coronary arteries. Does that make sense? Okay. So veins rely a lot on that muscle pump. Okay. Um, Dr. Doyle said he found this was the best example to use. Um, I would agree, because the heart is a positive pressure pump. And so think of it as a keg, because basically what happens when, and I'll use the left ventricle as, as an example, because that's, you know, the, I don't want to say the most important, but the most looked at chamber in the heart. What happens is that the left ventricle receives blood from the left atrium, okay? Flows through that bicuspid valve, and then that valve closes. Well, what happens is then that left ventricle contracts and it reduces the space and forces that blood out through, I guess, what you could call the distribution pipe, which is the aorta. Okay, so it's a positive pressure pump. 
and similar to a beer keg when you pump air into it. Okay? And so re just remember that that pressure is the driving force behind perfusion to tissues. So, you know, and I know we talked about blood pressure in lab on Friday, and I actually heard a couple people say, you know, that is too low blood pressure a bad thing? Well, yes, it is, because if you don't, if your blood pressure is too low, you won't be able to get oxygen to, you won't be able to get blood flow to tissue, okay? And this is an example of how blood pressure drops throughout the cardiovascular system. And so you'll see in the left ventricle, and again, if you look at the average of this, this is average over systole and diastole, and then large arteries, you see pretty high pressures, okay, in the left ventricle and especially in large arteries. But then as you go through arterioles and, some, and the precapillary sphincters or that smooth muscle associated with the, those arterioles, that's what those precapillary sphincters are, and then capillaries, you see a significant drop in in blood pressure. Reason being, I told you those capillary walls are really uh, fragile and really sensitive. And too much pressure will cause, might cause them to tear, burst, or it might just force blood actually through the walls. So what you want to try and do is limit the blood pressure in there. And this is a good example of why that occurs. So what you'll see, this line here represents the total area associated with these structures. And so what you see is, and the blue line represents blood pressure. So blood pressure drops as blood moves through arteries, arterioles, and into capillaries. The reason is, there's much more area occupied by those small capillaries than there are by those few large arteries. So think of it as a river flowing into a lake. Does that make sense? Okay. Because again, like I said, the walls of those capillaries are really fragile and sensitive. And then finally, like I said, you can see how much the pressure drops in veins and venules, and that's why that muscle pump is so important during exercise. Okay. And veins actually have valves in them too that reduce backflow of blood through them. Okay? Does the pressure increase when it goes out of the venules? No. So once it goes in, it decreases? Mm -hmm. the, the venules, it kind of stays, it's, I mean, and, and as you can see here, it stays fairly constant throughout venules and veins, and it just relies on that small, pre that small amount of pressure and then the muscle pump to move that blood back up toward the heart. Okay? And so we talked a little bit about this on Friday, and hopefully you guys are all masters at taking blood pressure now. Um, but what we did Friday is we looked at systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and from those you can calculate mean arterial pressure, which is just a representation of the average pressure that those arterial walls are under. Okay. And again, like I said, blood, there is an optimal blood pressure because blood, blood pressure that's too low results in an insufficient driving pressure to those tissues, and they call it hypotension. And a good example of this is when you stand up quickly and you feel lightheaded. Okay? And then finally, too high. Think of it as, you know, like I said, mean arterial pressure is the average pressure those arterial walls are under. If you're constantly putting them under stress, it's probably not good. Okay? And acute, 
in, like significant acute increases in pressure will lead to acute injury. Chronic um, will probably lead to an increased risk of coronary artery disease. Okay, and this example is really good. Think of it as a car tire. If you just keep pumping it and pumping it, and pumping it, eventually it's going to fail. All right, but if you constantly have the tire overinflated, you're just going to see increased wear. And just one of the concepts that I was reading about a few weeks ago is they call it microtrauma. And that constant high pressure just results in little microscopic injuries along the artery. And eventually what happens, and you guys know with injury, if you injure like connective tissue, it's not as elastic after it's repaired, is it? And so think of arteries the same way. They, they have a lot of connective elastic type tissue in them. If you injure that tissue, little by little over time, it's going to become a lot less elastic. And elasticity is a really important fun, uh, feature of arteries. When you take your pulse, that's actually what you're feeling is that wave or that bubble that's made when the left ventricle contracts. It's actually an elastic wave that comes down arteries. Okay? And so hopefully you guys kind of got the gist of blood pressure when we were doing it in the lab. But basically what you're doing is you're placing the cuff on, you're pumping it up to a certain pressure. Um, you're supposed to pump it up to 180 millimeters of mercury. And what that does is it completely shuts off blood flow. Hopefully it completely shuts off blood flow. Okay? Then what you do is you start slowly letting air out and you listen for the first sound that's made that represents blood flowing back through that artery again. And that just represents the pressure that's associated with that specific artery. And then once that sound disappears, you have your diastolic blood pressure. Okay? Systolic is when the first sound occurs. Diastolic blood pressure is when it disappears. Okay? And then we talked a little bit about it in my labs. I'm sure Colleen talked about it in her labs. That depends on who you look at now. Um, some organizations have like normal or optimal blood pressure is 110 over 70. Um, kind of the classic or what it's been for a long, what it was for a long time before that was 120 over 80. So it's just fairly safe to say that below 120 and below 80 are probably optimal values. And then these are the other classifications associated associated with the higher values of blood pressure. And one thing, one point that I made to my labs was just remember that blood pressure is really variable. And specifically it responds to stress, how much you've had to eat, how hydrated you are, all sorts of different conditions. And so for someone to have high blood pressure, to have hypertension, it has to be taken that at that level on two separate occasions. Okay? And then here's how you calculate mean arterial pressure. It's just one-third times the difference between systolic and diastolic blood pressure with diastolic added back in. Okay? And that just represents the average pressure that those arteries are under. All right? And so this is just, if someone had blood pressure like what we used to call normal blood pressure of 120 over 80, their mean arterial pressure would be 93 millimeters of mercury. Okay? And so normally mean arterial pressure is anywhere from 90 to 100 millimeters of mercury. Okay? 
And so this is just an example of how hard your heart has to work, which is really amazing because think about it, you know, depending on when you start to see a heartbeat in the womb, from that point on, your heart doesn't stop, doesn't rest for as long as you're alive, which is pretty impressive that it can keep that up without fatiguing, without being injured, okay, under normal conditions, okay? And so you ha your heart beats over 100,000 times a day, okay, if you have, and that's at 72 beats a minute, and that's for a sedentary person, okay? And so if you look at cardiac output and look at cardiac output over a day, your heart pumps over 7,000 liters of blood during the day, which is pretty, f and again, like I said, it is just absolutely phenomenal that it can do that constantly without fatiguing. And so over a lifetime, you have 3 billion heartbeats, which is still way, way lower than our national deficit, okay? <laughs> which is sad. All right. But I don't know if you guys have seen this, and they actually, they've actually done research with animals, and I think they've shown that heart rate and lifespan are actually very well correlated, um, where you have like mice that have a really high heart rate. Their lifespan is much shorter than ours. And so based on that, Neil Armstrong didn't like to exercise and said that he thought that every human had a limited number of heartbeats and so he wasn't going to waste his on exercise because his, his personal theory was that if, if I use those heartbeats up during exercise, then, you know, that reduces my lifespan, which we know is very incorrect, okay? Because considering if you exercise at a heart rate of 150 beats a minute for 30 minutes, that's 4,500 beats. And then for the rest of the day, if you are in, under resting conditions, that's another, you know, 84,000, 85,000 beats. And so you have that many heart, 89,100 heartbeats in a day. However, if you look at the overall long-term effect of exercise, you'll see that it actually saves you heartbeats because it lowers your resting heart rate. Okay? And that's one of the, and so I'll ask you a question, why can a trained person's resting heart rate be lower and they maintain the same cardiac output? What increase do they see? Yeah, 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 stroke volume, okay? One of the, the, and again, like I said, adaptations in cardiac output are probably the most major adaptation to training in the cardiovascular system that you see. And that's because you see increased stroke volume, which allows resting heart rate to be lower, it basically allows you to be a little more efficient. Okay? So, that's not a guarantee or anything. Alright? But, you'll see what it can do. Alright? And then we have measured oxygen consumption in the lab. And, we measure oxygen consumption by doing breathing analysis. And so we can, and I've explained the card a little bit to my labs, but what we can do is we know how much oxygen is in air around us, and then we can measure the amount of oxygen you're expiring, and from that, we can calculate what this is. The AVO2 difference represents, it's called arterial venous O2 difference. Okay, so the difference between oxygen levels in arterial blood versus venous blood which would represent how much oxygen the tissue in between those two it's consuming. Okay? 
And so VO2, which we've measured in lab, is oxygen consumption, this Q represents cardiac output. And cardiac output is in liters per minute. Okay? So it's so VO2 is cardiac output multiplied by that arterial venous oxygen difference. So it's the amount of blood the heart's moving per minute multiplied by the difference in oxygen levels between arterial and venous blood. So it's the amount, Q or cardiac output, is the amount of blood moved per minute okay, by the heart, and it's in liters per minute, multiplied by the difference in oxygen levels between arterial and venous blood. Okay, so you've got amount of blood moved, oxygen difference. All right, and that's what's called, the, and that's called the Fick equation, F-I-C-K. And again, this arterial venous oxygen difference is going to vary. Under resting conditions, it's fairly small. Under exercising conditions, it's pretty big. Okay? And so we'll talk a little bit more about VO2 and measurement of it when we do the ventilatory threshold lab. All right? You guys have any questions? No? All right. That's... Wait, hold on. i got to remember if I was supposed to tell you anything. I don't think I was. Yeah, I, I don't think I was supposed to tell you anything else. What? I don't know about your quiz. He never said anything about your quiz. To me, at least. So, sorry. Tuesday? If he hasn't said anything else about it, I would plan on it being on Tuesday then. Wait, today's Thursday, right? Okay, hey, well, listen up, listen up. So what I'll do, I'll ask him, I'll ask Dr. Doyle, um, he should be in tomorrow. He's usually in Friday mornings before lab. I'll ask Dr. Doyle before lab what what may be on the quiz, and then I'll tell you in lab, and I'll give that to Colleen, and I'll have her tell her labs too. Okay. <laughs>